0: Let's talk about Facebook, and Zoom, and Steam. For many, these platforms were already a huge presence in our lives long before the pandemic. Then COVID-19 hit and suddenly school, work, coffee dates, even visits with grandma were either canceled or shifted online. In so many cases, this meant using platforms as repurposed or vastly expanded tools for connecting, learning, meeting with clients, and generally pivoting to the new tech normal. We've also been using platforms to consume and make media like never before. In just one example, a recent study by market research firm International Data Corp reported that viewers spent 1.72 billion hours watching live stream content on Twitch in May alone. This was nearly double the hours viewed back in December 2019. In addition to generating unprecedented revenues, the big platform companies have been on the hot seat all summer about their policies when it comes to misleading and hateful content, ongoing antitrust investigations, and a growing public awareness that platforms are inherently political. You announced recently that the official policy of Facebook now allows politicians to pay to spread disinformation. The White House is responding to Twitter's removal of political ads. Uh, Campaign manager Brad Parscale saying Twitter just walked away from hundreds of millions of dollars of potential revenue, a very dumb decision. What do we know about the deepening relationship between platforms and cultural production? How do platforms approach their newfound role as major distributors of news and primary broadcasters of media? And how is this impacting our shared culture? Enter the Platforms and Cultural Production Project, which explores these questions and more, using an approach combining media studies, political economy of communication, and cultural studies to understand how the rise and spread of platforms is changing cultural industries and experiences. Launched in 2017, this research collaboration builds on the complementary expertise of three principal investigators, Dr. Brooke Aaron Duffy of Cornell University, Dr. Thomas Pohl from the University of Amsterdam, and Dr. David Nieborg, who's a colleague of mine here at the University of Toronto. Together, they're not only providing a wealth of unique comparative insights into how platforms work and why, but they're also building a new framework for studying, critiquing, and potentially reshaping the role of platforms in our everyday lives. This work is so important. It's been the focus of two recent special issues of the academic journal, Social Media and Society, edited by the Platforms and Cultural Production team. They've also co-authored an upcoming book entitled, aptly, Platforms and Cultural Production, which will be published by Polity Press in 2021. I'm Sarah Grimes. Director of the Knowledge Media Design Institute at the University of Toronto, and host of the Critical Technology Podcast. Today, I'll be talking to Project Co-lead Dr. David Nieborg, the team's expert on the political economy of platforms. Before we get too far into this deep dive into the shifting relationship between platforms and cultural production, what is a platform?
1: um (laughs) it's sort of the million or the billion dollar question um um, so what do we mean when we say platform uh first of all there's an economic part of the definition it's a market a multi-sided market uh the second thing is that it's a programmable uh, data infrastructure Uh, and the third thing is it has a very specific governance structure that influences then or determines what you can do as a cultural producer.
0: When you and your co-authors talk about platformization, however, it sounds like you're talking about a lot more than a company taking over a service or a digital system becoming predominant. So what does the process of platformization involve and like, why should we care about it?
1: So we, we, we thought of it as a process because early on in the project, um, our our colleagues and our peers approached us and they said, hey, you know, I I study television and I study uh, film and and more of the, I would say, traditional parts of media studies. And they say, the things you're talking about are not, we we don't see that happening or not with the same impact. Um, So that made us think like, okay, how can we think of platforms and and sort of their impact? And then we came up with these two categories, being platform dependent and being platform independent. So these are sort of two heuristics. And the moment you become platform dependent as a cultural producer, so we again, we don't look at users so much, but we look at cultural producers, people who professionally produce uh, cultural content, the moment they become platform-dependent, they become platform-dependent in different ways. They can become economically platform-dependent or infrastructurally uh, and in terms of governance, but also during different phases of their uh, process of producing content, during the production phase, the distribution phase, the marketing phase, and the monetization phase. And it's not said that, um, it's not predetermined that in every phase of cultural production, you're equally impacted by platforms. Um, so we try to tease that out and pull that apart, so we have a better way of analyzing the impact. And that's why we speak of platformization because it, you become platform dependent, and if so, that has massive impact. But it depends on the region, the industry sector, when, where, which platforms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So then your question is like, why should we care about this? Um, why should we care about cultural producers becoming uh, platform dependent? Um, and This happens to be a week and a month and a year where we see how incredibly dominant these platforms are and and more dominant by the day since the start of the pandemic. Uh, Google, Facebook, Amazon and their counterparts in in China, Tencent, etc. They have become so much bigger in terms of uh, capitalization. They make more money every day despite everybody hating on Facebook. Uh, They posted their best quarter ever uh, yesterday. So these these companies are incredibly profitable um, and powerful. But for us, it's interesting then to see, like, what does that mean, right? Just to say, okay, they're big and powerful. And we don't say they're evil, uh, but we're not sure they always have a a, a, a sort of a good or a positive impact on cultural production. So we should care about this because these platforms move towards a place where, most uh, cultural practices and most instances of cultural production become platform dependent and once you are platform dependent uh, it's incredibly hard to get out of it you sort of get locked in Um, so why should we care about it? these companies are big and powerful and increasingly so but especially in terms of questions we as humanities scholars care about equality, equity, uh, sustainability, etc. Uh, I'm not sure on the long term if platform or becoming platform dependent or platformization uh, is a net positive.
0: You use the term cultural production quite a lot, and that's a really big term. It could include professional or amateur works, all kinds of different media. So in your research, what specific types of cultural production are you focused on and why those?
1: I myself, I'm interested in games in the game industry. Uh, Thomas Poole, um, first author of the book, he's interested in uh, journalism. And then Brooke Duffy, uh, he's interested in what we call creators or influencers or social media entertainment. And what we found in our conversations is that each of these sort of three industries or industry sectors or segments um, have different histories and thus different trajectories. So the game industry is interesting because they are always have, have always been platform dependent. You cannot play a game without a platform, right? So whether it's Candy Crush or Call of Duty, you need a hardware platform or a software platform or both. Uh, the news industry or journalism is different. Uh, you can have a physical newspaper without a platform. So some of their practices, whether it's production or distribution or marketing or monetization, still is platform independent. And that already creates interesting uh, comparisons and tensions. And, and in the book, we have those conversations where we compare these different industries because once you start to compare it, you see what happens if certain parts are not platform dependent. So we, we pick these three practices and, and industry segments to do those comparisons. But in the book, we try also to sort of make comparisons with legacy industries, film and television. We talk about about music a bunch because there's such good research on, on music. Um, but the cu- culture industries are so vast and so diverse, so we, we cannot uh, uh, talk about everything. The goal of the book is to create a framework and invite others uh, to focus on their... Uh, Uh, areas of interest. And we hope that the the framework we provide uh, is flexible enough for other industry segments.
0: I want to circle back to something you just said, which is that the games industry has always been platform dependent. Let's delve a little deeper into this. So how exactly does platformization happen in this case?
1: Historically, since the 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, games have been tied to these hardware platforms, the Atari, the PlayStation, the Xbox. And what we have seen uh, as game study scholars, what that, ha- what, what that meant for game production. So in my previous research during my PhD, I wrote about blockbuster games, blockbuster production. Um, and game production became increasingly uh, capital intensive. Right? You needed much more money to create these massive blockbuster games, Red Dead Redemption, Call of Duty, Grand Theft Auto. Um, so the industry had a very specific trajectory, uh, not all of it, but a big part of it. And then uh, Apple came along and then uh, Android came along. So then the the mobile uh, app economy or the game app economy emerged, Uh, Unity came along. So what's fascinating to see about the game industry is you had these hardware platform, you had to buy a PlayStation if you wanted to uh, buy those games in your house. And then all of a sudden, uh, 2007, 2008, 2009, people started uh, playing um, games on their phones. Billions of players were sort of added, to the, to, the, to the game economy, so to say. Um, so you had new platforms and that completely changed um, not so much platform dependency because our argument still is and was uh, games are always platform dependent in terms of the economics, in terms of hardware and infrastructure. But what's so fascinating about the app economy is that not only do you need to integrate your app like a Candy Crush with Apple in terms of economics and infrastructure. You cannot just invent your own business model or your own revenue model. You really have to play within the rules, the economic rules set out by Apple. You really have to integrate your uh, software and your tools with Apple if you're gonna uh, develop and uh, distribute an app. But what happened as well is that if you're gonna monetize and market your game, you also have to do that through the app store. Um, So you see more sort of intense platformization or games, game app production becomes uh, platform dependent in all its facets, in production, in distribution, in marketing and in monetization. And that sounds, maybe to some people that sounds like an obvious observation, but it has massive ramifications in terms of economics and in terms of infrastructure, but also in terms of what kind of games are made. Uh, Game developers have always had to reconcile with that. Nintendo has been notorious about, uh, since the 80s, about not having certain games on their platforms. Uh, And uh, Sony and PlayStation became more popular because they were more loose with certain rules and certain genres. So the game industry has always been more uh, sort of in tune with the platform holders. And we can learn a lot from that. There are so many observations like, oh, this is an industry that for decades had to grapple with the but uh, benevolent dictatorship of a platform uh, ruler um, and other industries, you know, that's new.
0: In the intro to the first special issue in social media and society, you mentioned that cultural laborers are, quote, beholden to platform governance frameworks, end quote. And as such, they must continuously tweak their work to fit these frameworks. What is the work involved in continuously tweaking and playing catch up with a platform's rules and agendas?
1: So when you look at labor, cultural labor has always been deeply precarious. Like working in the cultural industries, whether it's you know in the, in the film industries in, here in Toronto, in the game industry... Game development has always been deeply precarious, also before Facebook and Google um, uh, and Apple. That being said, what has then changed? Well, we would argue that if you sort of unpack precarity, what does that mean? If you unpack, like, what does it mean to work for or on a platform? All these uh, categories become more intense, right? You have to be more visible as a creator. You have to be more visible as a developer. You are even more hilled as as an entrepreneur. You have to be more entrepreneurial. Um, there is more inequality, we would argue, in, in a cultural sense, in a demographic sense, in, in in an economic sense. This precarity is rooted in economics, in infrastructure, but also very much these governance frameworks. Right? So what, what platforms do, they set out regulatory frameworks. They set the rules of the road. But most of these rules are very implicit and and very opaque and super arbitrary and apple is again one of those companies where it's so clear that they um they're just crazy subjective and arbitrary how they wield their power Um, and because these frameworks the governance framework and these regulations are so opaque what people start to do is they start sort of to game the algorithm They start to constantly look for for gaps. Where is space for you to create an edge? Because in a way, that's also what what, uh, uh, entrepreneurs are expected to do. Like if you're a good entrepreneur, you look for opportunities. You you know, Silicon Valley itself is based on this notion of disruption. Uh, But what platforms do not want, sort of ironically, they don't want to be disrupted themselves, right? So they they do not want uh, cultural producers to disrupt the. Governance frameworks. If you put an app in the App Store that contains uh, something that Apple deems, uh, you know, objectionable, whatever that is, and there are hundreds of examples of what that is, they pull your app sometimes without giving a reason or instantly. Right, so. This creates a whole new la- uh, layer of uh, precarity because where do you go? So imagine you're a TikTok creator in Toronto and you have millions of followers. Uh, TikTok is fairly new, so you're starting out. Uh, even I- during COVID, you start to maybe have some sponsorship stuff going on, and especially if you're young, you know maybe you, you're an entrepreneur now. Fantastic, good for you. You're, now you're TikTok famous. Um, But then uh, President Trump comes along and he says, we ban TikTok in the US. Instantly, your market is gone. Instantly, your source of revenue is gone. Where do you go? There is no real alternative yet for TikTok. These are the, the, the tensions. These are the categories along which you can analyze what happens to creativity, what happens to labor if you become platform dependent. And it's not always said, not everything is all bad, right? I, I don't want to create this sense of, of dread that uh, social entertainment, uh, social media entertainment or the game industry or, or journalism is going to shit. Not at all. We just have to be super careful, especially us as media scholars to say, okay, uh, what's the economic, uh, social, and cultural impact in this shift? Because on the long-term, if there are no viable alternatives, and, and these platforms are not uh, acting in a responsible way uh, that we deem responsible as, as Canadians, uh, you know, then, we're in, in, then maybe it might be too late.
0: There are two concepts that are used in your work that I'd like you to talk a little bit more about because I think they're really useful for thinking through these issues and for digging down into how this platformization process actually unfolds. So the first is platform evolution.
1: Yeah, so we use the notions of platform evolution uh, and boundary resources because um, if you become platform dependent, what happens and what's particular or sort of unique about platforms? So technology and digital technologies are, are evolving very rapidly always, uh, but platforms evolve in a specific way uh, in terms of how markets, platform markets develop and evolve and in terms of how they're infrastructure uh, develops and evolves and as a result of that and that's in an interaction with or vis-a-vis these frameworks these governance frameworks so when we say platform evolution we mean this constant uh, uh, development and involvement of markets uh, of infrastructure and governance um, so markets always evolve right prices are never stable you have supply and demand um, but in platform markets platform evolution has even more complex or there's more intricacy there um, because the moment you join a platform you have to ask yourself in which state of evolution is this platform and in the book we, we re-flesh that out but what we know from business studies and we, we engage with business studies quite a lot because uh, these are colleagues of ours that might not always ask critical questions uh, but they have a really good empirical sense of how markets evolve. and we try to, to use those insights. Um, they talk about diffusion, they talk about early adopters, uh, and they talk about life cycles and stages of a platform uh, of how a platform evolves. So just to give you a very simple example, if a platform is new, like an app is new, whether it's Instagram or TikTok, it wants to get as many complementers or cultural producers on board. That's the language they used. You want to have a lot of of them on board because if you have a lot of content, you get a lot of users. But then if a platform evolves, it's in a later stage of its evolution or diffusion, those platforms might think, hey, we don't need those complementers anymore. And we see that and and business studies scholars have studied this in depth. So when we look at that literature. You can see that if a platform is in a later stage of its evolution, it cares less about these economic actors. And again, that matters deeply. If you're early on TikTok and you're an early TikTok star, you have it made, good for you, then you're in such a a enviable, fantastic position because what we know from the business literature is that if you're an early hit in the app store, if you're an early hit on a platform, you're much more likely to generate revenue. So this is just one example of why we should be uh, even more mindful of how technology or, or platform technology and infrastructures evolve maybe more so than in the past.
0: The other concept that stands out is boundary resources. Can you describe what these are and how they help us to better understand what's going on behind the scenes?
1: Um, so this is also an idea rooted in, in business literature. If you're want, if you a platform company like a Facebook, uh, you want to grow, and the only way to grow is to open up your platform, your infrastructure and your market to external developers. So you open up the boundaries of the platform, so to say. And in order to do so, a producer needs resources. If you want to develop an app, where do you start? You're not going to open a document and start coding. That's not how it works, of course. Um, So you need tools, um, you need software development kits, you need uh, interfaces like APIs, application programming interfaces, so you you can get data or receive data or send data, and you need documentation and guidelines. And and that whole set of resources, APIs, SDKs, guidelines, and documentation, we call those boundary resources. Um, And we have seen very little... Uh, research on this so i find this one of the most exciting parts of the book because i really think this this idea or this concept uh is is helpful to think through all of these parts that that we talk about today it's like okay how does the platform exert its power how does a platform evolve how do markets evolve how do infrastructure evolve how does labor circumstances change how does how is creativity sort of uh, promoted or structured, etc. It is through those boundary resources that's where things get super explicit, right? Because you get a tool and the tool structures what you can and cannot do. The guidelines say what you can and cannot do. The API structure says or determines what kind of data you have access to. So by studying this boundary by studying these uh, boundary resources in a very systematic way, we can investigate Um, what a platform tries to do, what it allows to do, et cetera, et cetera.
0: I'm hoping you can speak just a little bit more about this idea that boundary resources impact creativity by structuring what cultural producers can and can't do within a platform.
1: Yeah, so in in one of the chapters we call, uh, very simply, creativity, uh, we try to tease this out, this question of... um, uh, how does pl- platform dependent cultural production impact creativity um and we we talk think and talk and think through that through certain categories like uh, niche, nicheification or netification. um are we uh, is cultural production more geared towards niches or hits we talk about metrification a lot um and uh, Coming out of games and game studies, I find that one of the most interesting sort of tensions in creativity. If you look at free-to-play games and freemium games, uh, we talk a lot in the book about Zynga. Zynga is the developer of Farmville um, and Mafia Wars. Um, in the game industry, there there is a lot of tension between game developers that are thought of as, you know, very creative. Uh, free open developers even though they're highly uh, profit driven Um, and then free-to-play developers which are seen as sort of evil bastards candy crush and uh, it's only uh, driven by certain metrics and data Um, so there is a tension there right if you're a cultural producer data and, and metrics can be super helpful right it's not all good and it's not all bad so if you're a journalist most journalists do not mind metrics that much. If you go to a newsroom, they they want to know who reads them and what articles are read. Um, It gets more tricky if platforms steer you in a direction where uh, it's only popularity-driven and the platform determines what is popular. If you ask the people who make uh, games and who, who engage in journalism, journalists, they would be they would say you know we're not against data metrics as long as we have uh, autonomy as long as we have room to interpret this data but also to um, uh, ignore it the studies i've read from creators is like they're, they're they're deeply anxious about this metrification trend like oh i need to be online every day the moment i go offline i lose a lot of viewers so because everything is so transparent Uh, in terms of data, how many viewers you have, what people like, what people do not like. Um, Sometimes it's directly tied to revenue, of course, right? So you can see what what happens, um, where the needle is moving. So this creates a a, a deep tension. If you want to be super creative, whatever that means in your domain as as a creator, if you do an unpacking video or a sound video or a TikTok dance or you know a PewDiePie kind of situation. Um, if you're constantly feel that you need to be present, that creates completely new uh, tensions in what you feel like your audience wants.
0: Hey guys hi Hey guys. 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 Hey guys.
1: Quantitative terms, there is a richer, more diverse supply of cultural content than ever before. And and the the demographic of creators in terms of their race, sexuality, and you name it is more diverse than ever before. You have more, let's say, queer creators that are openly uh, grappling with important issues, then there is a mainstream uh, uh, media production. Uh, the question is, um, then, can, can platforms do more? And, and then I think, yeah, uh, they can absolutely do much, much, much more in terms of enabling creativity.
0: I know you've been waiting for this question, since it's the theme of this first season of our podcast. How has COVID-19 impacted the platformization of cultural production?
1: So in 2016, you you saw the tech clash, a lot of critique against platforms. And then and then COVID happened. Um, and what we're seeing is that, you know, we're talking right now on Zoom. We're talking, uh, we're going to teach through Zoom. Um, we do everything on, on these platforms, whether it's Facebook or WhatsApp or Instagram, etc. Um, the last couple of days, uh, all these platforms have posted their quarterly results and they're They're just, they just, they will blow you away. A couple of weeks ago, there were so many reports of major brands pulling from Facebook because it's, you know, they're in a pretty bad position. Mark Zuckerberg is not our friend at all. Um, And lo and behold, uh, Facebook's advertising revenue is still growing through the roof. So it doesn't matter if Nike or, you know, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, pull their advertising, which is, you know, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars here. It doesn't matter. Uh, Facebook generates its revenue. It's like 90% of, or 80% of small businesses. Um, So what what happened after COVID, the world and cultural production became more platform dependent and not less. Creators and journalists particularly, they were, hit pretty hard and and in an instant and especially in the us of course because the way their economy is structured some organization is tracking how many journalists are laid off and it's it's like hundreds if not thousands already and we're just at the start of the economic fallout of covid Um, so already we're only a couple of months in and we have yet to see the full impact of the economic fallout of COVID. Um, But I think cultural production and cultural producers will be hit super hard. Um, And it's, I don't know about you, I don't know about our listeners, um, that I get almost, I don't wanna sound too pathetic, but I get almost sick to the stomach to see these dudes, like your Zuckerberg, like your Bezos, uh, uh, testify before US Congress, and they make so much money. They made so much extra revenue. And you see uh, a lot of our colleagues, friends, people we study, uh, cultural producers, you know, just uh, struggling. Um, so it, I find it hard to reconcile these things. Like stock stock prices soar, but at the same time, and maybe this is it, right? This is platform capitalism. This is U.S. capitalism. This is neoliberalism. Maybe, um, uh, maybe that's the sort of the end of the story. Uh, you know, this should if this would have surprised me i'm not paying attention kind of situation of course this would happen uh, but uh, i don't think we should ever normalize this or accept this for what it is i don't know what to do about it as a a media scholar uh, but i think uh, in the next round of regulatory interventions by the canadian federal government i hope at some point they they don't Accept these answers from, from platform companies uh, and, and sort of uh, puncture through uh, the BS there and, and just demand, like, hey, and in certain European countries, you've seen that, right? If in, in France, particularly, uh, maybe there has to be a platform tax and that revenue goes straight to journalism, goes straight to cultural uh, producers, the arts, um, maybe that's a solution.
0: This seems like a fitting way to wrap things up, uh, because in the book, you also end with the question of how these processes impact everyday citizens in various contexts around the world. And I love that you refer to us as citizens, by the way, instead of the more common users or consumers, because we are citizens. And it serves as a good reminder that we do still have rights and that governments can still protect those rights through regulation and other action. We aren't necessarily at the whims of the big platform companies. What are your thoughts on the potential for regulation of platformization?
1: Well, you know, ironically, and I cannot, you know, I cannot stress this enough. This is deeply, deeply ironic. Um, but if you want to see alternatives and the effect of state intervention, look at Chinese platforms. right? So the state and, and platforms in China are deeply, they're the same. right? You, it's hot, you cannot untangle them. Uh, whether it's uh, do you in TikTok, WeChat, etc. So certain aspects of that just for the record are deeply problematic in terms of censorship, privacy, uh, propaganda, right? Uh, Everybody is hyper aware of that. But at the same time, you also see very promising uh, examples of what alternatives could look like, right? So a TikTok uh, in in North America, says, okay, we're gonna uh, put two hundred million dollars in a fund, and and then not for the hits, not for the blockbusters, not for the PewDiePies, but we're gonna put it in a fund. And if you are a small TikTok creator and you have a certain amount of views, and we'll have to see if this fund is gonna be structured this way, but it's it's these kinds of funding are, are used very differently in in China. Um, there are also e-commerce um uh platforms in China and and streaming platforms that you that use very different business models that are much more um advantageous to smaller uh, and medium-sized businesses and and entrepreneurs so it just shows that it can be done right so with facebook you get capitalism on steroids right the platform capitalism is this this book by uh, by Nick Shirnak unpacks that really well. Facebook and Google and Apple and Amazon are hyper-capitalist businesses, um, but we have so few sort of Western alternatives. And now in China, you see really good scholarship, mostly also by uh, our Chinese colleagues, who show uh, both the problematic aspects when it's about propaganda, but also show economic alternatives, where uh, what they call uh, petty producers, um, which, which is not um, uh, a pejorative, but uh, sm- small entrepreneurs in, in China, maybe not even the big cities, are, find ways to make money through these platforms, right? Whether it's through tourism, whether it's, it's through uh, cultural production. Um, so when I see those things, I think, okay, there are more sustainable uh, models.
0: A big thanks to Professor Nieborg for joining us today. Please follow the links in the podcast description to find out more about the Platforms and Cultural Production Project, the publications that were mentioned here today, as well as information on where to send any questions or comments you might have. Please subscribe to the Crackle Technology Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes and posts as they become available. And thank you for listening.